This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shobhana Xavier. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you're safe and well wherever you are. On today's episode, we are joined by Adam Bursi, who is an editorial assistant at Fortress Press, to discuss his new book, Traces of the Prophets, Relics and Sacred Spaces in Early Islam, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2024. Using writings of early Muslims, Bursi recovers an important landscape of history of material objects, especially relics and tombs of prophetic figures as they were conceptualized in the 8th and 9th centuries. The book draws from various genres of writings, including biographies, hagiographies, hadiths of the Prophet Muhammad, Quran commentaries, or juristic compilations to capture the tensions and also practices around tombs and relic veneration, especially to establish boundaries around similar pious practices as they unfolded amongst Jewish and Christian communities at the same time in the Near East. In the process, we learned that there were debates with regards to postmortem traces of Muhammad's tomb, which also impacted how spaces associated with him, such as a tree or a minbar, were perceived, as well as other prophetic figures like Ibrahim, Abraham, or Daniel. Such examples raise conceptual questions around ideas of absence and presence in the bodies, and also prophetic figures' capacity to give intercession. In mapping these early debates and narratives, Bursi masterfully captures the dense relationships that early Muslims had with holy bodies and sacred spaces, be it with giant footprints and relic thievery and ideas of the afterlife. The book will be of interest to scholars who are interested in early Islamic history, but also scholars who work on contemporary shrine cultures. In our conversation today, we discuss some of Bursi's approaches to textual analysis with some of the sources that he engaged with for this book, what the Prophet Muhammad said about tomb and relic veneration, relationships between Jews, Christians, and Muslims, particularly in terms of how they approach bodies and relics, and notions of piety, intercession, and much, much more. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Adam Bursi about his new book, Traces of the Prophets, Relic and Sacred Spaces in Early Islam. Hi, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Shabana. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book, um, Traces of the Prophets. I just finished reading it and it's fabulous. You did a lot of intense work there, so I'm really happy to kind of process it all with you. Um, as you know, we have a tradition on the podcast to know a little bit about who you are, especially your intellectual journey, and what led you to writing this particular book. Yeah, sure. So how far back do should I go to undergrad or grad school or whatever speaks to you at the moment so whatever okay. you feel like is important <laughs> for our listeners okay sure yeah so um I went to undergrad at Kenyon College in Ohio in the U.S. um and uh I was a classics major and a religious studies minor um and as a religious studies minor, I studied with Vernon Schubel and Nurtin Kilik Schubel, um, who are the, the resident experts in Islam there. Um, and both of them really emphasize like the, the diversity of Islam as a, as a religious tradition, both historically and, and contemporaneously. Um, but as a classics major, I studied Greek and Latin, and I uh, did a lot of work with like ancient Mediterranean religions. And then I went to grad school at um, Cornell University. And I studied in the Near Eastern Studies Department, and I was really uh, interested in the the intersections and and um, interactions between Jews and Christians and Muslims um, in the centuries that that we call late antiquity, 
um, which were really like a foundational time period for all three religious traditions. So at Cornell, I spent a lot of time studying like Syriac and Hebrew and especially Arabic. Um, and I, I had come in sort of expecting to focus on Syriac Christian literature um, with Kim Haynes Eitzen. Um, but I ended up doing a lot more with Arabic and early Islam um, with David Powers and Ross Bran and, and Shalka Turawa and Mundur Yunus. Um, but at the same time, I was at, while I was approaching these texts, um, using tools that I'd gained from the, the, the sort of um, theoretical perspectives of studying late antiquity with, with Kim Ainsightson. Um, and I think it helped because that's a field that's sort of incorporated more theoretically inflected um, methodologies or perspectives than, have, than sort of historically had been the case in the study of early Islam. Um, and then my dissertation at Cornell was looking at the ways that that bodies were used um, by Jews, Christians, and Muslims um, in late antiquity and sort of rhetorically and ritually distinguishing between like licit practice or you know religion and illicit magic or sorcery. Um, and so the book project is sort of a, a very uh, long adaptation of, of that dissertation project, um, focusing less on magic and more on uh, relics, which were a component of the dissertation project. But um, I, I saw that there was like enough material to sort of focus on that aspect um, or that, that ritual and rhetorical world um, of late antique religious practice. Um, in Islam, particularly. That's great. As you're talking, I could see all the pieces coming together in terms of the book, <laughs> especially in terms of the diversity of primary sources you engaged with. I was really impressed because um, they weren't just Sunni sources. There were Shi, there were Ismaili, and I really valued that. And so I could see that as being part of your, your training and pedigree um, and also the linguistics um, that you bring to this. Um, I was really amazed by your sources and kind of the archive that you're working with. Um, and I'm not a textual person. So I, I often am so curious about scholars who do that kind of historical work and engage um, archives and texts. Like, what was your process like? Um, what kind of questions do you ask? Or like, what are you looking for when you're looking at, let's say, Quranic commentary or um, Hadith traditions, which you use a lot, or hagiography, so these stories associated with kind of holy figures. There's like a range of genre of texts you're using. So like, how does Adam show up to those texts? And like, what are you looking for ultimately? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, like, I would say that, you know, in all honesty, I'm definitely one of the people that have been uh, assisted by the usage of like digital search methods. Like, so, you know, what I'm... I try to I've tried to incorporate as many early texts as I as I could, you know. Um, and so I mean, one of the sort of interesting and maybe difficult things about the study of early Islam is that like uh, the the texts, you know, often there's a sort of like cross genre function of a lot of these texts where, say, like a particular hadith or a report, um, a habar um, in Arabic uh, might show up in in a Quran commentary, but then also show up in historical texts and, you know, um, juristic texts and uh, lots of different places. So you, you can't, you can just focus on, say, one genre of literature, but I think that you probably are going to be missing a lot of stuff if you just do that. Um, and that that's, and that to, to, to an extent is also true, you know, not just looking at Sunni texts, but also looking at Shi and any body text to a, to a lesser extent. Um, so for me, yeah, like, uh, there are definitely like places where I would start to, you know, because often say like, um, Bukhari's uh, Sahih is like a, a huge text. So where, where do you start looking? Um, so there would be places where I might start looking for um, texts having to do with, say, the hairs of the prophet as, as relics. And um, you, you would kind of... In some ways, it would not always be where you, where you might expect them. So there there's uh, material in the the section of the, like the libas chapter, like the chapter on clothing, where there's material about um, uh, the the way that the prophet wore his hair, like whether he dyed it or not. Um, but interestingly enough, like uh, that's also where we get this really interesting hadith about um, someone using the prophet's hair after his death as a sort of like um, 
healing object, a sort of uh, object of power that was able to um, dispense healing um, when it was introduced into water and someone would then drink that water. Um, so all to say like, yeah, there, there wasn't like, a, there's not just one place to look for this stuff, but you kind of have to look around. Um, there's you no, know, there's not often say a chapter on relic practices or something like that. Although in some particularly later texts, um, after the 10th or 11th century, I would say in particular, there start to be like more focused attention. But in the earlier period, it seemed like this was just something that, yeah, I might get a stray mention here or there. Um, there in in uh, the Muwata of Malak ibn Anas, which is a like quite early hadith collection, there is like a um, and there's different recensions of that text, but there there often is like a chapter on um, greeting the prophet, and this will be a place where you might have stuff about what you should do when when you're at the prophet's tomb, for example. But in a lot of ways, yeah, there, there's just a lot of digging that goes on in terms of like just finding stray references here and there, and and yeah. So it's it's difficult, but yeah, hopefully you find you turn up things. You found some amazing things. I mean, I think one of the things that's really fascinating is just, there are just like there's stories of giants and footprints, and you know, it's just kind of miraculous, kind of magical things. It sounds like um, in some sections of your earlier work. Um, before we get into some of the nitty gritty and some of the chapters, um, kind of taking a look from bird's eye perspective, I guess, what is kind of the broader intervention um, your work is making or what are you responding to or before we get into kind of, I guess the case studies in some ways, the arguments you make for it? Yeah, sure. So I would say broadly speaking, um, so my background, yeah, like I said, is in the study of late antique religions and, you know, a lot of um, <clears throat> scholarship over the last several decades has been situating uh, the emergence of Islam within that background of uh, the late antique Near East and understanding the ways that um, early Muslims were in conversation with Jews and Christians um, and other religious communities um, and the way that we can often situate, we, we can better understand early Islamic history by situating it within this context. Um, and this is something that, you know, you find lot, there's lots of books about, you know, the way that books and articles about the way that we can understand, say, early Islamic literature through a late antique lens, you know, uh, early Islamic hagiography or historiography, or, you know, that's literature, but also like understanding early Islamic art from the perspective of the late antique Near East and the ways that say the Dome of the Rock uses uh, iconography or um, mosaic techniques that we can understand from within the context of uh, the late antique world. Um, so the sound, the surrounding religious and social and political history gives us a, a perspective on, on early Islamic phenomena. Um, but one of the things that you know has been has been understudied is the extent to which relic practices were part of um, early Muslims' religious lives, and often this. Uh, this has been uh, understood as a reflection of uh, Islam being a tradition that 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 uh, discourages and in fact has nothing to do with with relic and tomb veneration, right? Um, so you know, we I, many of us have probably heard this idea that you know this is not something that Muslims do, um, either you know venerating relics or going to visit tombs and. And to the extent that it is, it's sort of marginalized as like popular religion or um, uh, the religion of like unintelligent people or not not the not the elite proper uh, Islam of um, sort of the scholars, the ulama. So all of this, despite the fact that um, there's lots of evidence once we start looking for it. Um, and what was interesting to me was in terms of like, because of, you know, the, the work that I've done with, with late antique Christianity and, and late, and, Ju and late antique Judaism as well, um, that, you know, relic and tomb worship was like very much part of the late antique world. And so this was often seen as like a, a break that early, that was, uh, that early Islam had with the late antique world was in this particular area of religious um, and ritual practice was in not doing things related to relic and tomb veneration, but 
once I actually started to look at sources, it seemed like there was like a pretty good amount of evidence that there were a good number of Muslims that found um, relic and tomb veneration as like, you know, perhaps not the the key part of their religious practice as Muslims, but certainly a component part of it. Um, and so the book is is trying to situate that this was something that early Muslims were doing at the same time that there certainly was also um, a rhetoric that said Muslims shouldn't do this. So, so looking at the ways in which um, relic veneration, tomb veneration, and the rejection thereof, like all of this stuff is mixed up in the ways that Muslims were defining themselves in their community in conversation with Christians and Jews and what they described as Christian and Jewish practice and, and what should or shouldn't be um, Muslim practice. And I think your capacity and ability to do like a broad stroke of what's happening in Jewish and Christian contexts and also early Muslim communities is one of the strengths and huge contributions of the book. Um, for listeners and for maybe contemporary scholars like me, what kind of are basically the periods we're dealing with? Like you're looking at 8th, ninth century, right? Is that that's what you're kind of classifying as um, late antique or? Yeah, right. So, the, I mean, so the yes, exactly. Sorry, this right. is a basic yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but it's good because like, so one of the difficulties um, and one of the sort of criticisms I can imagine that reviewers might have, um, or at least, you know, problematizing some of what I'm doing is the fact that um, a difficulty in studying early Islam is that we don't have sources for say, like that are contemporaneous with literary sources that are contemporaneous with like the Prophet Muhammad and the companions, right? So a lot of the sources that I'm looking at, um, not exclusively, but like a good number of them are, you know, hadiths about the Prophet or hadith, like uh, reports about the, the companions behavior and, and the generation immediately following them as well. Um, and these are often embedded in texts that are from, yeah, perhaps the eighth or ninth century, but often, you know, later than that, um, but are describing the eighth and ninth centuries. Um, and so uh, this is a, you know, this is, this is just, it is a problem. And, you know, it's a problem that historians often run, run into is, um, you know, the, the source critical question of like, how do you deal with texts like this? Um, and it, you know, uh, one of the uh, benefits over the last, you know, several you know, 20 years or so has been a sort of uh, text critical methodology that's looked at, um, it's called the Isnan Kumatan technique of like combining the Isnads of, of Hadiths um, with analyzing um, the, the reports, the text of the reports themselves to say, okay, can we, let, when we line up all the different versions of say a, a Hadith of the Prophet, can we, you know, can we say something about like where it's, what, what, what geographical area it's circulating? Is there like a time and place where it seems to emerge from? Is there a time and place where say like important differences in the text start to come up? Um, so does the prophet say you you should visit his tomb in this time and place versus like you shouldn't, right? Does that indicate something perhaps not about what the prophet himself said, but what about like certain communities in the early Islamic world are saying, right? Um, so yeah, uh, the the period that I'm mostly examining is um, the eighth and the ninth centuries, as you said, um, though incorporating certainly incorporating texts that are that are from after that time period as well. And the first chapter really kind of sets up some of the basic stuff, but also um, you get into some hadith traditions and what the Prophet Muhammad himself kind of said about what one right. can and not one can and cannot do around relic veneration. And one of the things that comes up in this um, chapter, there's a lot of things that come up, but this kind of how relic veneration also was kind of a boundary setting move by some early Muslim communities, especially as you're saying, in terms of distinguishing from Jewish and Christian communities. So you're also kind of dealing with that throughout the book. Um, but so yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about what did the prophet say? And then perhaps this other kind of meta version of like, well, how do we read some of these sources? Maybe because these are kind of, you know, really maybe polemical tools to distinguish and identify what the boundaries about being Muslim are against kind of the Near East you're dealing with which is really against Jews and Christians too, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> That's your entire chapter there. But yeah, maybe you could just pick out a couple of things that you might want the re uh, listeners to know. There's no way that you'll be able to kind of yeah. tease all of it up for us, but yeah. 
no, thank you for, yeah, like setting that up. Um, so, yeah, so the chapter sort of starts out, and this I had initially sort of started the whole book with this material because I thought it was like a really good entry point, um, but I ended up moving it, um, is that there's this hadith where, or a set of hadiths, um, where the prophet's on his deathbed and he says, um, in different versions, he either says, you know, drive the Jews and Christians excuse me, out of the Arabian Peninsula because they've taken the tombs of their prophets as 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 masajid or, or mosques. Um, and so this was interesting to me in terms of, you know, both there's like this really strong rhetorical move that's made in sort of situating this at the end of the prophet's life and so like making this one of the final things that the prophet says is like, you know, not only distinguishing Muslims from Jews and Christians, because in some versions he says, I want the whole, you know, the whole of, uh, the Arabian Peninsula to be Muslim, right? Um, so he does this thing where he there, there's this creation or this distinction of a Muslim religious community from Jews and Christians. There's also this distinguishing of sacred space where the the Arabian Peninsula, or in, in some versions, it's it's the Hejaz, um, and saying this should be a, a purely Muslim community or a purely Muslim space um, distinct from Jews and Christians or abs without Jews and Christians. Um, and in tying that creation of a Muslim community to the absence of um, mosques on prophets' tombs, or that the the thing that's made the, the Jews and Christians worth kicking out of uh, the Arabian the Arabian Peninsula is their uh, building tomb or building uh, mosques on the tombs of their prophets, right? Um, and so this this is a hadith that often gets cited as like you know the sort of like classical Muslim position about like tomb tomb veneration tomb worship, um, building uh, mosques on top of prophets' tombs. Um, and it's certainly there within the sources, and it gets cited by a lot of later people like like Ibn Taymiyyah, um, you know, voices that uh, are very critical of uh, relic and tomb veneration within Islam. But of course, when we, when we look at lots of other sources, there's lots of evidence, um, both literarily um, and then even in, in the archaeological record that that Muslims are are building are building mosques on on the tombs of of, of their prophets, or you know, in the in the case of um, the Prophet's mosque in Medina, they're incorporating the Prophet's tomb into the mosque space um, in a certain way, or at least into the the, the greater mosque space. Um, but also, you know, this uh, was something that um, it was important for my reviewers that I that I incorporate um, was looking at some of the archaeological evidence that we have too, where um, at the mosque at Rusafa, that's that's built by one of the last uh, Umayyad caliphs. There's this incorporation of the the um, relics of, of the Christian Saint Sergius into not into the mosque but directly adjacent to the mosque and and many scholars have argued that it seems as though he's um or the construction of this mosque space was like very much trying to draw upon um the sort of sacred aura of, of the location of the relics there um and then in the case of uh the Kathisma church which is a, a location that's um just south of jerusalem in palestine uh, this location that in the starting in the I think the fifth or sixth centuries I can't remember I can't remember exactly um, was a was an important um, Christian sanctuary because it was believed to be a spot where um, Mary had sat so the the it's called the Kathisma church because the, the word Kathisma means seat or chair in in Greek um, and it was believed to be a spot where Mary had either sat or or in some traditions maybe even the spot where she had actually given birth to Jesus. Um, and there's archaeological evidence that this was uh, a holy space that was taken up by Muslims in, in the 8th century. Uh, there's a, there's the incorporation of a mihrab, indicate, you know, so, um, indicating um, the importance of prayer towards uh, Mecca um, and, and the building of uh, or the incorporation of uh, a mosaic floor in this time period that has some some pretty clear um, Islamic valences to to the story of Jesus's birth that's told in the Quran and also some overlaps with some uh, some of the Dome of the Rock imagery. Um, so basically, a alongside this this Hadith tradition that does have the Prophet saying you, sh you should not be doing these things. 
there's a lot of uh, literary evidence also of Muslims doing precisely, precisely this this contra thing, um, as well as some material evidence that it was also happening. Yeah, fabulous. And um, you know, I think chapter two and three look at other prophetic figures, which I loved because it's just not about veneration towards the Prophet Muhammad. And this is kind of also where you're, there's like boundary negotiation with other traditions, like Jewish Christian traditions who may have shared like prophecy with these figures. Um, the Maqam Ibrahim, I think it's chapter two. And you'd start off with the story of this figure called jo- uh, George and Avery. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about George and what he was trying to steal and why? Yeah, it's this it's this kind of strange story that I I've not found um, except in one later uh, history of of Mecca, um, but it shows up in Al Fakih's uh, Al Mecca, which is a text from the ninth century, um, and it's basically the story of this guy named Georges in in Arabic or George um, in in English. Um, who is a it's it, it's ambiguous in the in it's intentionally ambiguous in, in the original Arabic it says he's he was either a Jew or a Christian and he came to Mecca. I'm not sure why. Um, but he became a Muslim while he was there. Um, and uh, that night he stole the Maqam Ibrahim. Well, the next day the Maqam Ibrahim was discovered stolen. Um, and then, then the, the people in Mecca started to look for it, and they found it in in George's possession. And he and they asked, "Why did you, why did you do this?" And he said, "Well, I wanted to bring it to um, the king of the the king of of Rome or the king of Rome, so the the Byzantine emperor." Um, and he's and as a result of his his theft, he's he's killed. Um, and that's where the story ends. Uh, and it's just sort of, you know, you could just see it as a sort of like kind of strange little little local flavor um, about things that were happening in Mecca. But to me, it was interesting in terms of the parallels you can draw between this rather strange Islamic story and a lot of Christian stories from late antiquity about the theft of relics, um, about people that out of great piety and wanting to have the relic for their own or to bring it to a, a place where they feel like it would receive um the the veneration that it's due um they will you know steal uh, a relic um and and this is a whole genre of of late antique and medieval christian literature and um yeah so i was interested in sort of like situating this this islamic story um about the theft of the maqam ibrahim which, you know, I, I think a lot of listeners probably already know, but for those that don't, the Maqam Ibrahim is this um, stone with uh, a set of footprints in it um, that according to uh, tradition is the it were, is a set of miraculously inscribed footprints that the prophet Ibrahim or Abraham, um, that, that these footprints were sort of, you know, miraculously set into stone at the moment that, um, or during the time when, the prophet uh, Abraham was constructing the Kaaba in Mecca with his with his son Ishmael, um, and so there's a lot of traditions about um, the importance of this stone where it originally was uh, nearby the Kaaba. Um, but yeah, it's you know nowadays it's set within this dome uh, right uh, to the east of the Kaaba. Um, for some emer- some period of time um, in earlier centuries, it seems to have been. Uh, actually kept inside of the Kaaba at different times and only taken out. Um, but yeah, the chapter chapter two of my book focuses on the Maqam and um, different stories about the ways that people were venerating the Maqam Ibrahim, um, the, uh, the Abbasid Caliph al-Mahdi. There's several stories about him coming and actually um, pouring water into the Maqam Ibrahim and then drinking that water as a, as a sort of source of blessing and transmitting, you know, um, giving water to other people for so they could have it to drink as well. Um, yeah, and sort of the, the way that the Maqam Ibrahim actually functions, I would argue, as a kind of, of relic itself, um, right at the center of um, the Islamic sacred space. It's a great chapter, and I think you also are conceptually tussling with like issues of absence and presence in a relic like what and this is like a thread in the entire book of like what's actually constituting the the attraction or the pull right um 
Yeah, and this continues a little bit into chapter three. And I think I said David accidentally before, but you deal with Prophet Daniel here and not David. Oh, dear, yes. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. I made a mistake. Um, yeah. But this is also interesting because this is kind of has this other like military political context, I guess, and also dealing with these other issues of apocalypticism and perhaps what um, Daniel represents in some of these traditions. So right. can you tell us why perhaps maybe people would be trying to hide a, a tomb like this? <laughs> <laughs> and what yeah. died would like what what's up with that yeah yeah so this is a chapter where yes so the the story that i opened the chapter with is about um during the the islamic conquests of uh the the region of khuzestan and um western persia um there's this story about the discovery of um, the prophet Daniel's body in this um, in the city of of uh, Asus or Tustar, different versions in the story, um, and basically, you know, um, it's kind of like a lot of Christian stories where there's like this discovery of a, an ancient tomb of a holy person, um, and importantly, like the Daniel's discovered, and you know, he's like obviously centuries old, but he's he's completely undecayed. Um, he's a you know perfectly preserved body, sort of uh, illustrating the the holiness of this 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 prophet's body. Um, but in Christian stories from you know around this time, that that body would then be you know transported and and installed in a shrine or you know placed in a church where people could venerate it, right? Um, maybe not per public veneration, but like buried under the church's floorboard so that it could you know exude its its holiness into um, the surrounding space um but in this story instead you know there's lots of different versions of the story that i that i deal with in the chapter um and other ones that i don't even deal with in the chapter but that uh that instead of you know taking the body and then installing it in some holy place instead um the muslims who discover it are commanded by the caliph umar ibn al-khattab to, to just uh put it back put the body back where it was and and hide it, uh, or either put it back where it was and um, make sure that no one can find it, or even put it under the river so that no one can access it. Um, build, or I'm sorry, dig, you know, thirteen different graves in the middle of the night, and then just put it in one of those to make sure that no one knows where it is. Um, and yeah, so the chap in the chapter, I try to make clear that this is one of several different stories that exist in in early Islamic texts about the discovery of holy person's tombs, um, whether it's prophet's tombs or, um, yeah, mostly prophet's tombs, martyr's tombs. Um, and this seems to be a sort of like topos within um, a lot of early Islamic literature. And when people have, have read these stories, they, they, it's usually, they're usually read within the context of what we think of as uh, sort of Islamic iconoclasm, right? The, the rejection of uh, relic and tomb veneration. They say, well, they wanted to bury this, the, a, a holy body like this, so that it wouldn't be venerated. And I think that, that there's some truth to that, right? I don't think that that's like a completely inaccurate way of reading these stories. But I think what we also find are these traditions about how there's, you know, tens or hundreds of holy bodies in places in, in regions like Mecca or Syria or um, you know, lots of different places throughout the Islamic world where the the existence of lots of different holy people's tombs that are not necessarily um, uh, publicly available for, for worship, nonetheless are part of what uh, is said to make these places sacred. And I, I read these stories about finding uh, holy bodies and then reburying them as part of this creation of an early Islamic sacred space or early Islamic, um, the, the, the sacralization of the of early Islamic geography by saying that there are all of these different hidden tombs throughout the uh, throughout the landscape, um, so that there's a sort of like yeah like like you said there's a sort of uh, present absence or absent presence of of the holy person's relics that you weren't you won't necessarily go be able to like go and worship daniel's tomb although in later centuries they, they do exactly that um 
but you'll be able to to say that there's all of these different uh, prophets and and other holy people's tombs spread throughout um, the landscape in, in hidden places. And it's so fascinating to think about. It's like the soil and the places that you walk upon are right. it's like constantly porous with some kind of sacred presence, right. you know? Exactly, um, yeah. Um, and so I think I really, this chapter really struck me in that way. Um, so I really appreciated the kind of the way in which we revisited or kind of provided a different analysis of possibility some from some of these stories around Prophet Daniel. Um, of course, all this kind of culminates with the Prophet Muhammad's body um, right. and really in the next chapter. And I think the same issues are coming up again, right? I think some of this idea, and I love the phrasing that you use, post-mortem um, kind of presence, like, I mean, existence, like what is actually residually left of the of the Prophet Muhammad specifically, um, and these negotiations of dates, like if it's 40 days of residual presence, or if it's like three days. Um, and it was really striking to me that a lot of these kind of intellectual Muslims, you know, literate Muslims are really negotiating these things, right? Um, right. And in terms of, I think one instance, there was a fear that perhaps somebody had stumbled upon the body of the prophet, and they had saw the foot or something like that. And, and they were panicked about what what that meant, like, should there be a foot? Or are we, you know, and so you did a really great job of walking us through in this chapter so can you maybe again you won't be able to do all of it for us but give us a little bit of like what were people thinking about what happened to the prophet muhammad when he died right yeah so i mean and like you i thought this was this is one of the more interesting things is that like rather than and this is something that um it's not just you know something that happens in the study of islam but in other religious traditions as well there's this assumption that like relic veneration is this thing that like um the masses do right not that that to the extent that elites participate in this kind of cult practice it's like um for political gain or something like that right versus like what when you actually look at a lot of um texts uh that there's like yeah very very much literate um theologically uh literate not just literate in terms of being able to read and write, but like very much engaged in the sort of like, yeah, making Islam, like thinking through the theological and uh, um, thick tradition of like what it means to be a Muslim. Um, so yeah, these are some, these are some of the people that are very much talking about like, well, uh, what is the prophet's body like after his death, right? So there's like stories that pop up from from quite early, and you know scholars like um, Stephen Shoemaker and others have argued that like these stories are so so strange that it seems unlikely that they would have been just completely made up out of wholesale. That they that the prophet's companions from like the moment of the prophet's death were like debating whether well is the prophet actually dead? Is he did he like go up and commune with God for some amount of time, just like Jesus did, or like Moses did when he went up um, on Mount Sinai to talk to, to God for, for 40 days. Is, is that what's happening? But then, so, and so, and according to different versions, that's why they don't immediately bury the prophet's body um, and don't do so until it starts to show signs of decay, like, um, you know, signs of smell or like physical sign, like, uh, the stomach starting to bloat from from decay and right alongside those stories that clearly are trying to say like no the prophet was 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 a human being like anyone else you know like he was not there was nothing sort of um supernaturally special about 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 the prophet's you know sort of corporeal existence and right alongside those stories are ones that are very much invested in saying no the prophet didn't show any sign of decay um and in fact, those the, these versions where the prophet doesn't decay, then there's even ones where people say like, you know, where hadiths where the prophet says like, you know, after you die, I'll be able to, or I'm sorry, after I die, I'll be able to, you know, intercede with God for you. And they, some people around him will ask like, well, how will you do that when your body is, has decayed in the ground? And I'll say, well, prophet's bodies don't decay. And so there seems to be the, the existence of these hadith seems to indicate that there is some sort of um, important scene in the prophet's, you know, postmortem existence, like um, that the ability of the prophet to sort of like exist in a body is seen as 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 important. Right. Even though, you know, there are 
plenty of the, theological arguments you could make for why it doesn't it wouldn't necessarily have to make sense right right because god could just reconstitute the prophet um as he will do with all like on the day of resurrection but for whatever reason the the, the prophets continued sort of um undecayed existence was seen as something that was worth um arguing for and so yeah we have like um scholars like Said ibn al-Musayyib who is saying uh no the prophet does there's nothing there's no importance in say like going and visiting the prophet's tomb because um he, he's not so much invested in the question of whether the prophet died or not but the question of like well why would you go visit the prophet when he has been taken up to heaven by god so there's these hadiths which which pop up in both sunni and shi'i texts that say that um within a certain number of days after death prophets bodies like perhaps so that they don't decay are immediately taken up uh, by god um they're not laying in their tombs after a certain number of days but they're taken up to god to to live with him in heaven um and so there's lots of different you know so there, there seems to be this sort of intellectual battle that takes place between people on different sides of these questions um, and it takes place partially in the, in the realm of, of different hadiths that are put into circulation about, you know, the prophet said, um, encouraging uh, Muslims to come and visit his tomb or saying, it doesn't really matter if you visit my tomb. If you say a prayer for me, it will reach me wherever you are in the world and wherever I am in the world. Um, and so there's this sort of um, literary, uh, we, we see, we have literary pieces of what, is probably a sort of theological and, and ritual debate that's going on in the, in the 8th and ninth centuries about a lot of different questions about the prophet's continued existence after death and the related sort of ritual question of like, well, should we go to um, the prophet's tomb in Medina where his tomb is in order to to visit him there? Um, is that, you know, an important thing to do? Is that something that is actually discouraged? And, you know, we have traces of evidence of, of these different positions that, that different Muslims, different Muslim communities were taking in this regard. And what was interesting to me is that while it's this is usually thought of as something that like divides Sunnis and Shi'is, right? That, that Shi are, the Shia community are, or Shia communities are, are those that encourage, you know, the visitation of, of tombs of, you know, say the prophet and the imams. But in fact, we have both, uh, we most, for the, the Shi'i voices for the most part are, are pro, you know, uh, Pro uh, pilgrimage to the prophet's tomb, um, but we also have pro Sunni voices that are that are in favor of, of of that kind of practice as well. So this is something that was transcending uh, these sectarian communities in a way that um, I think will be surprising to some people. It really was to me, and I think you did a fabulous job giving space to all that diversity because I think I don't think you allowed kind of our contemporary perceptions of secretarian history which may or may not have been real to kind of impose what at this time would have been just like proto moments before those things really coalesced into what we imagine them to be today um, and you continue with this discussion moving from the prophet's actual body um, and post-mortem existence to actually what you call traces which is a theme that you're building throughout the, the book of existence maybe um that were associated with the prophet such as um, a tree you know you know a particular war or um a member of the pulpit and so the final chapter substantive chapter really further pursues this and there's a really i think an overwhelming question of intercession i mean you kind of were evoking it with your previous question as well i'm like what are the purposes of these spaces um but I think you also in that chapter, you might you evoke um use Jafar Sadiq a lot. And he himself, when he was writing some of the stuff, wrote in a place that had a, you know a residual presence or some association with the Prophet Muhammad too, right? Which I thought was really, really interesting. So what were like, you know, why would a particular tree or a place associated with the Prophet Muhammad be important? Like what were people doing at these places or what were they trying yeah. to do? Yeah, this is a great question. One that I I I'll, I'll answer the question, but I think it's really interesting that it's not always clear what people were doing there. Um, but yeah, so um, I think it's not Jafar Sadiq they were talking about, but actually Bukhari is the one who oh, was like right. composing some of his texts, um, like by the prophet's tomb or, or between the tomb and the minbar. But yeah, yeah exactly. Sorry, sorry. Indi yeah. Yeah, sure. But, you know, indicating that like there's something to be 
something to be had for being in this space that like it it in that something in the space that, that there's well that's one way to read it right that like being in the space imbues something in the individual or perhaps it's just a sign of one's own piety to be in this this space right the chapter is and places um, where the prophet prays oh, yeah, yeah. Rising the places prophet where the prophet prays. Prays. yeah so um basically this is about um the ways in which um not just the prophet's body and grave itself is sort of imbued with um this uh authority or sacrality by early muslims but also yeah other historical places in mecca and medina that are associated with things the prophet did there things that the early muslim community did there um and that you know so there might be say like a place where the prophet was said to have like um had dinner at one place and that this was remembered as 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 a particularly sacred or not particularly sacred but as a sort of sacred space or yeah and where i get the chapter's name like uh, places where the prophet had had prayed become places where people are visiting and seemingly based on you know the the sources that we have are coming and praying at these places and these might be mosques obviously but also just like little spots throughout medina and mecca um and i don't deal with it i don't think in this chapter but in, in some forthcoming um stuff that i'm dealing with there's also this commemoration of these spaces through perfuming of them you know as like um places perhaps uh through the the sensorial experience of of uh the perfumed space or perhaps if you can't even smell it through the the putting um the, the perfume is called haluk and it's it has a lot of saffron in it so like maybe just the being able to see that this space like that so there it would imbue that object this place with with red or yellow um very strong color um so there are particular places where the prophet was remembered to have prayed that that was uh, covered in this kind of perfume seemingly in order to sort of mark it as a as a sacred space so in some cases people are coming in and praying at these at these locations um in the case of the prophet's minbar we get mentions of people like rubbing uh their hand over it and then putting their hand from onto their own face and i argue this seems you know this seems to indicate that you know there's um some kind of tactile holiness that's associated with the you know the the, the prophet minbar probably because the prophet himself having touched this space been in this space and then moving that holy touch onto your own body um but yeah there's 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 mentions of um so in the case of one in in one mosque in medina where the prophet was remembered to have sat um a rock on which the prophet a rock within the mosque where the prophet was remembered to have sat women are reported to have come there and and sat on it themselves and and in order to um uh if they were having trouble conceiving and becoming pregnant they'd come and and they would miraculously be able to conceive after that um so there's like a few things that are happening that at these kinds of spaces that um are sort of uh you know they're not part of like the five pillars of islam but they're certainly a sort of a uh, form of a pious practice that people are doing um and i think this is where i close the chapter is like looking at the ways that um muslim scholars like how do they deal with with these kinds of um practices like in terms of like the fiqh tradition and and for the most part um you know muslim scholars are not saying this is like a required part of islamic practice right but nor are they saying absolutely don't do it so neither are they like requiring it but nor are they saying you absolutely should never do this but more saying it's a sign of your own piety that you can do if you would like to do it um so look again sort of contesting this the assumption that muslims and particularly the muslim scholarly class was going to treat this kind of behavior as like illicit and wrong and to be avoided but um at the same time nor are they like absolutely saying everybody has to do it either but sort of in a mid place and um in a midway location in between those two extremes um which is itself an interesting uh sort of scholarly position to take i think no absolutely because reading the book i kept thinking about so much of this 
seems like the things that I find in field work when I go to shrines and like especially Sufi shrines they're not necessarily prophetic ones but some of them are claimed to be you know um I've been in Alexandria and I've heard you know different stories about different prophets being entombed there and like all of the stuff or uh, Mary and so you do kind of hear these stories but as I was reading through your book I was like oh this seems quite similar to some of the things I I've seen and I think it's helpful uh, also just as you're saying there wasn't an explicit don't do this or yes do this but people have been kind of negotiating and compromising on this kind of element for a long time um, and I think that's what you're taking your epilogue into is like a kind of not a contemporary example but you're moving us a few centuries ahead and looking at the example of a sandal of the prophet yeah. Muhammad and kind of the cult that's emerging and we hear stories about hair also um of the prophet muhammad so um what would you want scholars especially scholars like me who do this but yeah. think of contemporary shrine cultures like what would you want us to take away from a book like yours yeah no i mean i think that's exactly it and i'm really it it makes me feel good to hear that you feel like yeah this this resonates with things that you're seeing in your own field work and to me that that's kind of the point and you know in some ways it's a narrow point that I've just like expanded to a whole book's worth is that like this is something that uh the Islamic tradition has been grappling with from the very beginning right but it's not the 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 sort of classical narrative is that like uh all all relic and tomb veneration was treated as like a despicable bid'ah from the very from the beginning of islam that it's only in the sort of medieval centuries that that you know popular practice starts to seep in um and according to like ibn taymiyyah and certain other voices it's it's the the practices of jews and christians that muslims are adopting and what i'm arguing is that like this was very much like something that was native to islamic tradition from basically the, the very beginning um, which is not to say that it was like wholeheartedly accepted, but that it was like a, a set of practices and um, stories and uh, attitudes towards sacred space and sacred materiality that was being discussed from very early, both positively and negatively. So situating these kinds of things like very much within the Islamic tradition from the very beginning um, and that there's, uh, as you said, it's not something that was, uh, that, that a definitive take was, was evident from the very existence, but from, from the, from the very beginning, but like the existence of different positions on these kinds of issues from, from very early within Islamic tradition. It's fabulous. You've written it in such an accessible way. I was able to get through it and um, I definitely would be citing it in my own scholarship in the future. So congratulations to you. Um, I know you've just, the book just came out. So hopefully you're celebrating and resting and just enjoying the fact that the book of this huge amount of labor is out in the world. Is there anything on the horizon in terms of future work or what are you up to these days? Yeah, I have some chapters that are sort of like things that I wanted to be in the book, but didn't make their way in about like um, visiting tombs and other sacred spaces to bring rain. And uh, like I said, about perfuming of, of sacred spaces associated with the, with the, uh, the prophet's prayer spaces um, and uh, some material about the sort of like heavenly nature of the Kaaba and early Islamic tradition. Um, some chapters. I mean, I also have a lot of stuff still about magic within an early Islamic tradition that I would really like get to get back into. But yes, I'm very grateful to have this project done for now. And uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next few years. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, definitely bask in the glory of it all and celebrate. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and chat with us. And I hope our listeners will definitely pick up the book and engage all the more other stuff that we didn't get to as well. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Shabarla. And that was my conversation with Adam Bursi about his new book, Traces of the Prophets, Relics and Sacred Spaces in Early Islam. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you will join us again next time. Until then, take care.